1964 New York World's Fair, celebrating man's achievement on a shrinking globe in an expanding universe. I'm Paul Zoll, and these podcasts will be regular updates from the worlds of literature, popular culture, and the old religion, that's Bob Dylan's phrase, in relation to some of life's everyday problems, such as anger, loss, and bewilderment. Most of my podcasts will begin with a text, sometimes from a novel, I Love Possessed, sometimes from a movie, The Bride of Frankenstein, sometimes from a song, Telstar, for example, sometimes from the Bible, Perfect Love Casts Out Fear, sometimes from a TV show, Tonight's Story Will Be a Thriller. Each week, I hope to offer you something different, something entertaining, something even, well, blood-transfusing. Today I would like to talk about preaching, or uh, in a larger vein, communication. Uh, Naturally, I'm interested in preaching because that's what I've been attempting to do for 35 years. And I'm also uh, one who has taught young men and women who are thinking about and seeking to become preachers, proclaimers, uh, people who offer some hope in the spoken word in the Christian pulpit. But the principles which I have now uh, come to believe underwrite and underline successful preaching are very much the same uh, that would underline almost all human expression or better communication. Uh, the voice from one, the giver to another, the receiver, the sender to the receiver. And there are some uh, Uh, lessons and some uh, rather deep um, emotional truths that uh, I believe I've learned that I'd like to speak about. And I hope they'll actually speak to you as a potential artist, uh, you as a as a person who listens and hears and speaks with your friends, uh, you who is constantly trying to get a message across to your parents, to your brothers, to your sisters, to your employers, to your boss, to your uh, associates, to your colleagues, to your students. And this uh, question of communication and what's really going on? Is it at the heart, ultimately, of an emotional and deep question of the human being and the human personality? I'm not going to talk about how-tos, but I'm rather going to talk about the person of the communicator, the person who of the expressor, the asserter, so to speak. What is actually uh, needing to go on within that person? That's you, that's me, uh, which will uh, somehow create a line of resonance and and a recognition that allows what you have to say to find a receiving place in the listener or hearer or the person whom you seek to bring into your own thinking about a subject. 
Now I'm going to use a sort of uh, 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 sort of an out of the way resource here. I'm going to use uh, something that was written in 52, 1952, uh, probably, but it's not entirely sure when it was written. Entitled "Belief and Technique for Modern Prose: List of Essentials." And this is a list of 30 sort of um, statements about communication that were committed to paper by the novelist Jack Kerouac. Kerouac, uh, in 1953, had written in three days at the kitchen table late night of his mother's apartment in Queens, New York, Astoria. He had written a novel that came to be known as The Subterraneans. This is a fabulous uh, piece of uh, fiction. And uh, this three-day wonder, this remarkable work called The Subterraneans, uh, is, uh, uh, w- w- was so impressive to Allen Ginsberg and William S. Burroughs that they uh, pleaded with Kerouac to write down something of what he had done. And so he wrote a, a fairly like four-page document, a three-page, two-page document actually called Essentials of Spontaneous Prose to try to explain his method in communicating rapidly and seemingly without any kind of inhibitions, not in a vulgar uh, or angry way, but he somehow seemed to sort of channel his inner observations and feelings in a way that was very striking and impressive to his fellow writers. But probably before he wrote the longer document, he wrote this shorter list of essentials. And I'd like to uh, use this as the takeoff for a discussion of communication and specifically preaching on my podcast series. Now, before we look at Jack Kerouac's Uh, very diamond-like and uh, pithy statements about the uh, effects, causes, and rationale for his spontaneous communication and how it is that he worked this out to communicate almost instantaneously with readers and listeners. And I'm going to say how this applies to uh, communication in general, I hope, and preaching in particular. I think it is fair to state that we have currently in the preaching ministry and in the whole uh, production of sermons, we have in our world a problem. Houston, to use the vernacular, we have a problem. And the problem is that empirically, we don't seem to be getting through. I'm not talking about large uh, pundit views and large journalistic views of Christianity and religion or authoritarianism or supernaturalism versus secularism and Jeffersonianism and all the sorts of things that we read about. I'm just saying that empirically, we seem to be having a problem. And the problem is measured out in decreasing church attendance. Now, I know that's not the whole story, and sometimes there are we over-freight uh, our fortunes in decreased attendance uh, uh, on uh, the, we make it all our fault and so forth, the clergyman's fault, the preacher's fault, the church's fault. And there are many reasons for it, but this I know from years of experience of hearing sermons. I've been all over the world listening to sermons in different languages, mostly in this country, students, colleagues, associates, assistants, bishops, visitors, uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of opportunities to hear preaching. And what generally happens is that the listener who is craving some help and craving some aid and some sympathy and some understanding and some hope... uh, usually at his or her wit's end, although he may not say it, 
what's going on beneath the surface is very often in life a cauldron of perceived need and amazement and mourning and the need to be given wise, sympathetic, loving uh, counsel and perspective. And you go into so many places and what you hear is either uh, basically a form of moralism in which you are, despite sort of a 10-minute run-up, you're basically told what to do, how you should feel, and sort of what to do about your bad feelings and how to minimize the negativities rather than assimilate them or look at them or, or find a way through them. You're generally given tools to somehow control or manipulate or dominate your negativities rather than to, to really grip, be gripped by them, let them run over you, and in doing so often find your answer. You're often given some kind of recipe. And then you try this recipe and you're defeated. You, you, you often end up uh, being almost as defeated by the preacher's prescriptions or imperatives as you were defeated when you entered the door of the church hoping for some kind of solace. And so you either, I find, uh, I, I either receive a kind of moralistic address of a, of a quivering and flailing self, which doesn't really help me. It only makes me feel worse about where I am and where I found myself and my crippling deficiencies and characteristic flaws. Or in some situations, and it's sort of a growing edge today, I may get a 40-minute long expository discussion of a biblical text, which is basically a kind of a lecture, a long lecture about a very legitimate and very often wonderful text in the scripture in which the pastor goes through the various aspects of it, unpacks it, uh, does it verse by verse, and uh, tells me other parts of the Bible that relate to it, and give me an overall picture of God's word written. And the trouble with that is it sounds good, but it presupposes that I am being reached ideally through my head. That if you want to reach a person, uh, reach them through their head, give them a kind of lecture slash teaching, and if they sort of bite onto it, that will, because the word in itself is so powerful, that will be enough to break the logjam of their lives. Now, I, that may be true for some people, and I hope it's true for many people, but it hasn't been true for me. I tend to, to find that it becomes quite intellectual, and I fear that I'm listening to sort of a college lecture about a religious subject, albeit from a very sincere speaker. And so I say to myself, you know, it was hard enough for me to remember what I learned in lectures in college or graduate school. And then when it came time for the exams, I'd go over my notes and memorize as much as I could and remember it as, as strongly as I could, pass the exam, God willing, and then out the ear, out the door, uh, within a day or two, or sometimes less, sometimes more, I would remember a great deal of what I'd striven to learn from a lecture. So if lectures don't teach me that much in college when I'm really trying to pass a test, why should they necessarily reach me uh, as a religious seeker or a person who's looking for solace and understanding? Um, I think there's probably a presupposition that we learn through our heads in some forms of preaching or that we can do what we're enjoined to do in other forms of preaching. And both these have kind of defeated me I don't know about you, but they've defeated me, and they've made me look in some new places. One of the places is in some of the greater, uh, more insightful literary figures. And for me, at least, one of these would be Jack Kerouac, who for all his terrible, debilitating life flaws, at certain points of breakthrough in his creative life, seemed to understand a great deal. 
And this is why I find his uh, 30, uh, really 9 or 10 points about uh, expression to be guiding lights for me as I look for some help because, Houston, we have a problem. We need some help. And what Kerouac is doing as we sort of look at the at least the empirical demographic failings of our church enterprise and I believe also of our preaching enterprise, which is so uh, melded and meshed with it, is that we uh, begin to see that the place to start is the person of the preacher. The groundwork, the the groundwork has to be laid for the message to come out in the uh, engagement of the person of the preacher or communicator or artist. First and foremost, that's where you begin. And when that is working deeply and archaeologically and sensitively and realistically and perceptively in your own self, you are then able to speak to the selves of the others who sit to listen to what you have to say. So I'm looking. I'm looking. I'm like that uh, the, the, the Moody Blues song, I'm looking for someone to change my life. 1970, Moody Blues. Remember, the song is called Questions. Go back and listen to it on YouTube. I'm looking for someone to change my life. And I'm not getting it from, from the sermons, uh, even if I grew up in some kind of a church environment. Mama... Papa, uh, and even if I know somebody who's credible who's been helped, but I'm not getting it. So the point of these talks is to saying, look, something's going wrong. At least something's not going all that right. So let's look at it. So what I'm going to do now is to look at a few principles in the light of a, a, a really perceived need to communicate in such a way that people will want to listen to what we have to say and actually will be able to say with some sincerity, you know, that helped me. I was spoken to through that. That, that. that made a difference in my understanding of the particular problem that's right on the plate this morning that I brought into church thinking about. That's what drew me here. And you know what you said addressed me. I actually felt you understood where I'm coming from. And I might even come back for more. Now, um, what uh, I have felt about this is that the real issue is often the preacher or asserter or communicator himself or herself. The real issue is the artist. What is going on with Paul Gauguin? What is going on with the speaker? What is going on with the advertising creative director? What is going on with me that might in fact uh, have something in common with what's going on with you? And to see this in its... um, a very uh, strong form is to be illuminated by these insights that a very great communicator, because whatever you want to say about Kerouac, this, that, or the other, accusations about Kerouac, this was a man who understood about communication. I, uh, he is really huge, you know. This is not like uh, James Gould Cousins, who was huge in 57, but no one's ever heard of or reads today. This man, you can't, you can't, uh, his books fly off the shelves to this day. And he died in 1969 in St. Petersburg. This man is still a huge news. I was in a, a record store in uh, New York a few months ago, a great vinyl record store in the West Village. And the guy there is a real authority. And I said, look, uh, in addition to getting the, um, the, uh, uh, particular record. I think it was The Eyes of a New York Woman by B.J. Thomas. He said he had plenty of those. I, uh, duh. Are you out of your mind? That's what you want to listen to? 
you might as well stop listening to this podcast right now if you're talking to listening to somebody who actually thinks Eyes of a New York Woman is a great song by B.J. Thomas, but you know you might be surprised. In any event, I'm in this record store in the West Village, and I ask the guy, the authority, the godlike authority, I say, look, do you ever get in any of the vinyls that were done by Jack Kerouac with Stan Getz in the 50s? Because he released, I think, two, possibly three records that were actually released during uh, Kerouac's creative heyday with jazz artists or other producers, David Amram and a few others. He actually produced a few uh, haiku recordings, a few recordings, of him reading uh, um, some of his Friday Afternoon in the Universe, some of his poetry. Uh, they're really good, and uh, I've heard them on websites and on DVD, but I said, do you ever get any of these? And he said, well, you know, you do not know what you ask. These records, if they're original, if they come into the store, they go for thousands and thousands of dollars. They are, they are worth more than their weight in gold, even. They are the hottest item in the world. And I said, well, what accounts for that? I mean, the man's been dead since 1969. And he says, well, you know, in a place like New York, there are many, many people, and especially young people, who regard Jack Kerouac as God. So, um, please don't tell me that I'm off the wall here by trying to find someone who is regarded by a whole bunch of people who do not go to church as God, because he must be doing something right, and we must not be doing something as right as that. So, we're now going to look uh, for a few minutes at some statements that he wrote in probably 1952 when asked by Ginsburg and Burroughs to sort of come up with some uh, rationalizations of why his work was uh, so, um, uh, so brilliantly done in such a quick way. This book, The Subterraneans, which, by the way, was later made into a movie uh, with... Um, George Pippard, and I think Roddy McDowell. Not a very good movie, but one with high aspirations by uh, Freed, Arthur Freed, the great director of, uh, producer of uh, Hollywood musicals. It's an interesting movie to see, but I've only seen a section of it, and those who have seen it say it's really pretty terrible. But in any event, The Subterraneans, he wrote this list of essential thoughts about communication, and I want to uh, underline a few of these, read them, and talk about them a bit as they relate to preaching, and then I'll finish today's podcast on communication. Uh, these 30 uh, lists, a uh, uh, list of 30 essentials, uh, I'm just going to uh, isolate a couple of them because they're somewhat repetitive, and I'm going to try to give the main, they're sort of six or seven that seem to give the main outlines of Kerouac's understanding of what's most important in communicating. First, he says, number two, submissive to everything, open listening. Submissive to everything, open listening. Well, right off the bat, uh, we, the communicators, the speakers, the preachers, the persons who are trying to communicate, the artists, we need to be submissive to everything, open and listening. Most people are not, are, have a million ideas about everything. They're rapidly putting all their conceptions and their notions and their ideological uh, pigeonholes about different people and different groups of people. They're not seeing what's going on in front of them at all. They're, they're seeing what's going on in front of them through a hardwired set of impressions and emotional responses. And so right off the bat, submissive to everything, open and listening, what a great thing to actually have your eyes open to what's going on around you. 
Cousins wrote that people are what they seem if you're old enough to see it. What he meant by that is most people are children and they see everything going around around them through childish and often glasses that are rose-colored glasses or they're tinted uh, by all sorts of ideas and notions and fashionable uh, uh, pigeonholings and caricatures and projections and transferences that they have right in front of their eyes. The creator, the listener, the speaker, the writer needs to be submissive to everything, open and listening. Well, try that one. You know, I I hope so, and I know it's true. The speaker needs to be someone who's actually listening as opposed to telling. This is very hard for many uh, sort of, quote, Christians, especially Christian leaders, to, to bow to. They really are in the business of telling. They're telling what they've heard, but they're more in the interest of telling than they're interested in listening. And that means that they're often missing an awful lot of what's going on, even in their listeners. He then says in uh, point four, be in love with your life. Now that's something. Be in love with your life. In other words, uh, don't, uh, you know, what, what most people are doing is they're trying to bind themselves up. They're tremendously, the average person doesn't want to be who he or she is. You know, I want to be a, a different person. I want to be a bit prettier. I want to be a more confident or self-confident person. I wish I could have a boyfriend. I wish I could have a girlfriend. I wish I could, you know, I just, uh, I've been thinking about the magic flute a lot recently by Mozart. And uh, what's driving the sort of very pretty, lovely, young character, Papageno, the uh, the bird man, the, the, uh, the uh, Vogelaar in German, the, the man who, who captures birds, that's his living in the forest. And uh, what is driving this young, very regular kind of a guy? He wants a girlfriend. He repeats it about a trillion times in the first act of the opera. It almost becomes precious and rather irritating. But um, he, he's not in love with his life as it is. He's always thinking about what his life isn't. And uh, Kerouac says, you know, to really uh, be able to speak from yourself, you have to, you have to accept your, the life that you have. His expression is be in love with your life. Well, a lot of people aren't in love with their life, but at least we could accept the life that we have. I mean, this is my life. It's Paul's life. It's not your life. Your life is your life. You, you have to finally accept that this is the life you have and uh, be able to come to terms with that. And out of that, that, that acceptance of your life, that compassion on your life, that feeling for your life, something, uh, something good is, uh, is, is, uh, is going to be spoken because then you can speak to another life. You're not speaking out of a false life. You're not speaking out of an artificial life, out of a mask, out of something you think, uh, a life that you think you ought to be leading, a projected personality that you ought to have, that the world wants you to have. Be in love with your life, point four. Then he says in point five, something that you feel will find its own form what he means there, uh, this is very similar to what St. Paul talks about in Galatians, about fruit that develop naturally from a root. That fruit, which are a characteristics or character virtues, are formed from who you are. They come from the root, and he means by that the root of belovedness, uh, someone who is in love with his life, someone who is able to accept through the grace of God in St. Paul's case, accept himself, uh, feels uh, really uh, affirmed in his, 
in his ishood, his being, and therefore doesn't have to fight himself all the time. And therefore, the feeling that you come out about life and about your world will, in fact, then take uh, bear its own fruit in its own way. Kerouac's way of putting that is, number five, something that you feel will find its own form. Don't worry about the form of your work. Don't worry about the, the way it's packaged. Don't worry about the, the means and instrumentality of its expression. Don't worry about the means by which it is to come about. It will, in fact, what you feel deep down will find its own form. He says a few other things, and then I'm going to, to uh, sum this up uh, uh, before uh, uh, projecting what I'll be trying to do uh, in the uh, second of these podcasts on preaching. I hope they may become the first two of, of others, because the, the issue is important. It's certainly important for a struggling and empirically uh, um, declining uh, f- situation of mainstream faith communities, at least in our cultural context. That may not be true in Central Africa, uh, and that's great, but it is true here. It's certainly true in other countries that are, uh, for example, Europe. But it's certainly true right here in central Florida or New York City or wherever you happen to be. A Kerouac wants to tell us as we seek to communicate. He says in verse 7, and here he sounds a little like a beep-bop poet, blow as deep as you want to blow, and then following directly on that, write what you want bottomless from bottom of the mind. In other words, go deep. Don't, go, don't rely on the external text, important and true as that may be. Go deep inside yourself before you can really equip yourself to speak to others. You have to be able to understand who you are before you can attempt to understand who others are. This is a, the great thing that uh, Bishop Salmon, this very remarkable retired uh, bishop of South Carolina, he's one of the really safest voices in the whole what's left of the Episcopal Church. He's a very, very wise and insightful pastoral man, and he often says to his clergy in years past, and still says it, before you get up there, deal with your own stuff. Before you attempt to deal with other people's stuff, deal with your own stuff, that is, your own wounds, your own suffering. Blow as deep as you want to blow, bottomless. Go into your own self before you take up the uh, tremendous and perhaps presumptuous, but ultimately well-meaning burden of wishing to share out of your own self what you have learned from woundedness and frustration and uh, Um, irreparable loss in many cases, and go deep in you before you go deep in others. Write bottomless from bottom of the mind. Uh, Finally, uh, he says uh, uh, two things that I think are quite uh, important. Number 15, tell the true story of the world in interior monologue. Now, the, uh, the phrase there that is for us is interior monologue. Understand what's going inside you. Understand the monologue. I mean, listen, if you could write down or uh, speak out uh, what's going on inside your mind at any given point in the day, you'd be amazed. You, you say, I'd like to do that. Then another voice says, you can't do that. It'll fail. 
Or you better not do that, else you'll suffer this. Or why don't you do that? Even though you know it'll get you into trouble, it might be kind of fun to see what trouble really looks like. There's a self-damaging, there's a self-punishing, there's a censorious, there's an encouraging, there's often a a rascal and really not-to-be-listened-to trickster voice. There are all these voices that people have. But what you find is when you actually sort of get in there, that you tell the true story of the world. Because everybody has an interior monologue. All women and all men, all children and all older people, all career professionals, women, men, young students, ambitious young professionals, uh, fallen middle management depressives, everybody has an interior monologue, which if the truth were known, beautiful women... People, women who regard themselves as homely, handsome and athletic men who have a tremendous amount of apparent confidence, and real dweebs who feel like all they want to do is have Chef Boyardee spaghetti in the microwave. There's an interior monologue that has us all in thrall. And if you understand your interior monologue, you've probably told the true story of the world. Let me tell you about why people really, when they take the time to read the novels of James Gould Cousins, about whom I'll speak in podcast uh, um, 7 and 8, why when they take the time to read about this neglected and uh, uh, absolutely, at this point, uh, unread novelist, is they discover something in him that is very universal. He writes interior monologues, not in sort of the James Joyce way, which you sort of have to have an index to understand even a part of it, and not in... uh, Uh, The Jack Kerouac way, although similar to Jack Kerouac, but a little bit more, um, a lot of punctuation. Jack Kerouac just writes it without punctuation, and it's a great virtue. But um, this uh, Cousins, this writer of By Love Possessed and Guard of Honor, two wonderful books of the 50s and late 40s, he is uh, constantly getting inside the characters and understanding all the different voices and uh, mean things they think and sexual things they think and uh, judging things they think and uh, self um, self-judging things they think and uh, defeated things they think and harsh things they think. He captures the inner dialogue of the human being. And when I actually get, invite friends of mine to read these uh, books, just start, just read Love by Love Possessed, they're immediately struck by how this author speaks for them. You read a passage of in Cousins about how Arthur Winner Jr. is sizing up a situation with all his past and all his inner movements and reflexes and experiences, and you find it's the true story of your world. You say, oh my gosh, how did this author understand me? Well, the same way a preacher needs to understand you. He understands his interior monologue, and therefore he is able to tell the true story of your world. People used to come up with me to me when I was actually on, which was occasional, God willing, hopefully, once or twice, every so often. And uh, he would, uh, uh, this, uh, uh, some person would... Uh, would say to me, you know, how did you, how, how did you get into our bedroom last night? Or how, how did you overhear what I said to her in the car the other day? You, you, did you, how did you know that? And sometimes real anger, because they think maybe someone has blabbed to me and I'm talking about them, and I'm not. I'm talking about me. 
I'm talking, or I'm talking about an experience I had of another person that resonated in my own interior monologue, and I understood them. That's what people need in a creative work. They need to feel understood, loved, and sympathized with. This is what our preaching, for the most part, fails to do. Well, I will finish uh, in today's podcast with number 19 of these 30 list of essentials in Jack Kerouac's 1952 or 53, Belief and Technique for Modern Prose. By the way, no one actually knows when he wrote this particular list, although we do know that his one he wrote following it, which sort of um, kind of re, uh, remounted the same principles in a slightly more expanded form in fall of 1953. That came after this. He writes in number 19, accept loss forever. <clears throat> now, later in Kerouac's work, he actually questioned number 19. He felt that was a little tendentious or pompous. He somehow thought that was a little bit, uh, because he himself could not accept loss forever. He lost everything. He lost many, many things, and he uh, he fought that. He fought his losses, uh, but at certain points in his life, his points of maximum breakthrough, he did accept his losses. But he questioned this one. But I would say myself that I don't question it. That is to say, the, uh, uh, the to really speak to people who are losing things. Remember Mike Tyson, who said, "I used to think." Mike Tyson said, "I used to think life was about gaining." Now I understand life is about losing everything. Now that's not a sentiment a lot of people want to hear, but Mike Tyson said it, and you can take it for what it's worth. But it's very much as we've seen before. It's the backstory of uh, uh, Citizen Kane, the great 1940 film, and it's the backstory of many great works of understanding of life. Accept loss forever, and it's certainly painfully true empirically, whether we want to know it or not. But what a great creator, and certainly a preacher does, he understands, or she, that life is about loss. And the people to whom he is speaking are actually people who are in mourning. People come to church often in mourning. That's why they will often come to you if they haven't been for a while, they've been away for a year or ten years, they will say, you know, I don't understand. The moment I heard that opening hymn, I started bawling. I started weeping. I just cried and cried throughout the entire service. I always used to sort of say, oh no, when they would tell me that, because usually they wouldn't come back. Because they were so touched, they were so ready, they were so emotionally blocked that they, they, they wouldn't come back because it was too heavy for them. But I wanted to say, but I really couldn't because they wouldn't hear it. This is the best thing you could possibly do. Come here, go anywhere where this will happen, where you can accept loss forever. Where you can truly, deeply, lastingly, or at least uh, abreactively, cathartically, bring out the suppression and weep and cry, even if it's a hymn for all the saints who from their labors rest that reminds you of your mom. That's okay. It's your mom we're talking about. The hymn is only the tool which brought you there. Accept loss forever. So if you as the speaker are in touch with life as a loss, as a proposition that results in mourning, M-O-U-R, then you will probably be someone who will be able to speak affectively to listeners who have in fact lost and are grappling, even if they cannot fully put it into words, losses that have created tremendous internal need, hunger, and turbulence. So we come to the end of today's podcast on communicating and the essence of focusing on the person, on the person of the speaker,
rather than on either a great chunk of mentally to be imbibed material, which I believe is based on a presupposition that is in many ways not fully true to life, or a kind of command and defeating list of injunctions. Look, if you don't want to hear it from your father, if you can't hear it from your mother, what makes you think you're going to be able to hear it from a pastor? It will have exactly the same reaction. Mom, I'd rather not talk. Dad, I cannot talk to you about this thing because all I'll get from you is a list of can-dos and, can and, and, and should-nots, and I just won't tell you as a result. Now, that's what's happened with our churches, and these talks are an attempt to understand a kind of healing uh, new look at the being of the speaker and the artist and the creator in hopes of coming to the sufferer to whom we so deeply wish to speak and offer a word of hope. Thank you very much, and God bless.